Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Episode number nine. Episode nine. My name is Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Titus Aturi. And this is Nick Hayden, also known as Dittinne. Wait, is that actually the name? Yeah. I thought you stuttered or something. Nope. That's why I did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> People use my family's make fun of me, but that's how I answered phones, they said. Dittinne? Dittinne, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So okay. I thought, uh, yeah, so I thought I'd mock myself. Sounds good to me. Um, so yeah, welcome back. We got another great episode for you, hopefully. So Nick, are you all snowed in out there? Uh, yesterday, I kind of was. It was not quite... There was a lot of snow. But everyone was like freaking out and going to the grocery store to pack up as if we were going to be under snow for like five days. By noon of the day after I could drive my van down a country road. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a good country road, and, you know, I wouldn't drive it often, but it's looking pretty good now. I mean, there's, you know, two feet of snow on all the curbs. Nice. It was enjoyable. Indiana usually doesn't get it as bad, at least northeast Indiana where we're at, isn't sometimes as bad as some other places. Particularly, I know one of our listeners, Greg, I heard, he lives up in, like, northern Chicago, where I think they get some lake effect snow. Yeah, I heard Chicago was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he said he got close to, if not three feet of snow that he had to clear out of his driveway. Yeah, that's nasty. Yeah, my driveway was drifted pretty well, and so that my, my arm kind of hurts now. But the nice thing is he said he got to listen to our podcast while he was doing it, so that I'm sure that helped. Well, then we need more snow, I think, for more people. <laughs> and I'm sure out there he's saying, no! <laughs> <laughs> no, that was plain of snow. I, it's February. It's time to start looking to spring. Didn't the groundhog say it's supposed to be spring soon? I think that's. I think that was a story. We had very warm weather here yesterday, but today it was back in the upper 30s. That's cool enough for Virginia Beach people, I guess. Yeah, we had school canceled three days in a row now. That, that's pretty good around here. Well, we're not doing our podcasts on weather this time, so we better move on. That's true. <laughs> but I guess the first section we want to get to today is... Listener feedback. We had a nice letter back from Brian Scherschel, who does our cinema selections. He uh, sent us a nice email telling us, <laughs> naturally doing what he does uh, really well, giving us a little more education about Rope, which we mentioned last time briefly as a play that had been adapted into a film by Hitchcock and with a very distinctive Hitchcock tone to it. But he gave us a lot more interesting info about the play, particularly that the play itself was actually based off of real life. Two actual men who'd committed a murder for the thrill of it, essentially. Kind of sad case of art imitating life there. Brian also made an interesting comment, and he he felt that plays have often been adapted into films with better success than books sometimes, because plays are another visual medium, and so it's not quite as much of a leap from one to the other. And that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it was done, it seems like, from my limited knowledge of movie history, much more in earlier days than currently, because nowadays they want movies to be even less play-like. But, you know, Few Good Men was based off a of play, which was like my sister's favorite movie of all time. Oh, I didn't know that was from a play. Yeah, by uh, Aaron Sorkin wrote, I think wrote this 
stage play and the screenplay, Eric Sorkin of West Wing fame. And The Social Network. Oh, yeah, The Social Network, which I forgot he wrote that. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't either. I'm a terrible film student. And uh, Doubt, that, what was it, last year that came out? That's off a play. Was it last year? It feels like it was a year or two ago. but It might be. Something like that. Yeah, that's true. So they still do, and both of the, you know, both those are very well-received movies off of plays, mm-hmm. which shows that it still works really well. That's true. I, I think it could be one reason why it, they don't do it as much now as it used I mean, you still see ones based off of uh, musicals like Chicago, for instance. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But at the same time, the Broadway stuff, I don't think it gets as much attention from pop culture these days. I mean, it certainly does from theater students and people who live around New York or Chicago. I don't know. I, I don't feel like plays are quite as prominent in the public's mind these days. That's true. But I, th- I think if you want really good dialogue, plays sometimes, well, used to be the place where you would find it. Not, I mean, not so much musicals, not that they don't have good dialogue, but non-musicals, it's all in the dialogue. Yeah, that's true. But I thought that was a good point. We wanted to pass that along. Uh, in the meantime, let's move on into Story School. Okay, today's story school kind of piggybacks on last time, and it's actually a topic suggested by a listener, a fellow friend of ours, Keith. I thought we should talk about reboots, times when storytellers recreate a well-known story, remake, or restart, depending on the situation, and into another form or retell it in the same form that it was originally in. Nick, I can see that there's some good and some bad things about some of these. What, from a writer's perspective, what would you say are the the good things? Well, I can see from a writer's point of view, and I've thought about doing this with some of my old abandoned projects, is that a reboot lets you get rid of all the the bad parts and keep all the best parts. Mm-hmm. You you take characters that you love and that you know other people already love, and get rid of all the stuff attached to them. So you can just start again with. Basically, the best, it's uh, like the Princess Bride, the the good parts version. Mm. That's what, in the book, it's supposed to be the good parts version. Right. And I think it gives you, as a writer, also a lot of freedom that you have a lot of built-in conflict and and well-established relationship patterns and villains and stuff ready to go. And you can hit the ground running. A lot of times, the, the start of any sort of, you know, movie series or TV series is where you're trying to figure out the characters. And you already know the characters. And you just... Have fun with them. And sometimes then you can also update them, like Battlestar Galactica did. You can update them to a, a modern mindset. You know, maybe make it grittier. Use old stories in new clothes to talk about the world as it is now, as opposed to how it was back when the show was first on. Yeah, that's a very good point. It kind of seems to me that the place where reboots come in most often, I mean, and we'll talk about a lot in our discussion, it seems like they're especially prevalent in comic book series because comic books, you know, it's an ongoing story that lasts for several years. So occasionally you have just so much baggage that it's so difficult to work around that you kind of have to restart from scratch. Or And then also you've got cases where, like you said, you want to update to modern times. 
you look at the earliest Superman comics or Green Lantern or whatever, compared to what modern culture, it's like two different worlds. Yeah, exactly. And I think it just gives a lot of possibilities to the writer, and most of them good to begin with. Especially with comic books, you have 30 years of stuff to look back on and say, okay, this stuff was not good. This stuff has always been great. We'll play that up. Yeah. A primary example, and this is the one Keith suggested to me, was the Marvel series... Um, the Ultimate series with the Marvels. They started off a series called Ultimate Spider-Man, which basically is for people like me, who I didn't really read Spider-Man comic books growing up. I didn't read very many comic books until I was like in high school, actually, ironically enough. But the great thing about the this Ultimate Spider-Man series, and they also did an Ultimate X-Men and Ultimate Iron Man and a number of other things like that. But it basically started from scratch, but they were retelling the stories that they had first developed. And like you said, retelling the best ones, retelling what was cool. And for people like me who were just kind of getting to know them, you know, particularly from the movies that had come out and stuff, it was really cool to feel like you were starting from the very beginning without, you know, knowing years and decades of backstory. Yeah. Because the backstory after a while, just you can't get into it or you're, or, or sometimes writers start, using massive amounts of backstory so you can't even follow the story unless you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the character. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's why they did the Star Trek reboot, too. They've been had so many different movies and TV shows and everything else, they kind of want to get back to the basics. Yeah. You know, and, and Kirk, McCoy, and Spock, that's all most people really want to know about Star Trek. It's true. Star Trek is probably the most infamous, well, at least until Lost came around, um, of having minute details of things that people cr try to keep track of and all various sorts of related media. Probably Star Wars is honestly in the same boat now. It's it's as convoluted as Star Trek is, at least. Well, they have so yeah, they have so many books and movies and comics and cartoons now. And video games. and Video games, yeah. Yeah, it's all over the place. But yeah, it was so limiting, and like you said, people want to know more about Kirk and Spock and McCoy and that crew, and it was hard to really do anything with them, particularly since, well, all the actors were old. I mean, that's another thing also. And, you know, there's nothing against it. Next Generation was a great TV show, but Kirk, Spock, and McCoy had such a great dynamic, mm -hmm. which is why they made six of the original movies, because, you know, even the plots were bad, the characters generally were entertaining. Yeah. I guess you could argue on number five, but... <laughs> but yeah, people who didn't even really care for science fiction necessarily would watch it to see those characters. I mean, that's why you've got... Why so many people enjoy Star Trek Four, even though we all know the plot is absolutely ridiculous. But Chekhov is just, you know, looking for nuclear vessels. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's goofy, but you enjoy it anyway, because you love seeing these guys in different situations. I think that's the that's the joy of Reboot, is that you can, you can play and even accentuate all those things that work really well. Yeah. So we talked about some of the good things about reboots. Let's let's talk about some of the bad things. What about reboots sometimes really ticks fans off? Well, before I get to the fans, from a writer's point of view, I think the danger in a reboot is relying too much on old stuff, on, on what's been done before. Right. I mean, you want to use the best of why you fell in love with it. But as a writer, you want to make sure you, you're still doing pushing new ground, or at least updating the story. You, you don't get stuck in, you know, in just doing... The same thing over and over again, I guess. Yeah, you have to find fresh material even in the 
stuff that's already familiar and yeah, established. Yeah, even re- reworking. And I think, I don't know if that's happened. I don't have enough wide enough breath, but I can see that as a writer being something to fall into. TV shows do that sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll just throw out Smallville. <laughs> <laughs> You've commented on Smallville before. I know, I just like, it's, it's, I don't really have anything against it. I just like to poke fun at it. But from fan point of view, the problem is when you reboot, the writers, they want to change some stuff for modern day or do stir things up. They don't want to make a carbon copy. They want to stir things up at least a little. Uh-huh. And so sometimes they'll make changes that hardcore fans think you can't do. I, I think back when the new Battlestar came out, Starbuck being a girl drove people nuts. He was like the main character in the original show. And now she, he's a female. And they're like, this is going to destroy the show and everything else. Yeah. But the writers had to, you know, they knew they were what they were doing. And sometimes things are so different or just so out there that people are like, where did that even come from? And if you're going back to our Star Trek story, Spock and Uhura? Yeah, exactly. What, what fanfic had that ever come from? <laughs> you know, I, in context of the movie, I didn't think it was a, was a bad thing. No, I, I, exactly. In the context, I i mean, I wasn't really offended by it, but it was very fun to put, from my perspective, it was very fun to poke fun at people who were really upset about it. <laughs> On the other hand, going back to reverse of another example that we had used, there is a really bad Spider-Man scenario called One More Day, which really ticked off a lot of fans, and I think they had good reason to be. In the Spider-Man comics, they had gone far enough where Peter Parker and Mary Jane, they were married. Mary Jane knew he was Spider-Man, and so did Aunt May, and actually so did most of the world, because Peter Parker revealed himself to Nation during the events of Civil War. An editor at Marvel decided he didn't like that, and he wanted to rewrite the whole thing. And so in a plot twist, Spider-Man wound up sacrificing his relationship with Mary Jane in order to save Aunt May, who was dying of, I don't remember, cancer or an accident. I forget what now. But basically, it reset the whole Spider-Man universe. No one remembered Peter Parker was Spider-Man anymore. He wasn't married to Mary Jane anymore. He wasn't even... He had become... Uh, I think I think he was a high school teacher at this point. He was a lot older. But then they regressed him back to high school age, all because all this seemed like more of the typical Spider-Man thing. But... It takes a lot of people off, and for a good reason. The feeling was, why couldn't you come up with new, interesting stories? Why can't Peter Parker and Mary Jane be happy? I mean, Superman and Lois Lane have been happily married for, I think, about a decade now, mm-hmm. if not longer. And there could still have been interesting stories coming from a slightly older Spider-Man. I mean, it wasn't like he had become senior citizen status or anything. <laughs> he was still young enough and active, just a little older, a little more mature, And they threw all that out the door. Now, see, the Ultimate Spider-Man series, they had a place for that. They could start from scratch and build on it from there. He was still young. He was still in high school in that whole series. Why they they felt like they needed to get to the very same point in the regular series is beyond me. That is is very strange. I I don't know. Because, yeah, why would you reboot when you've already rebooted? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's, it's not like it's not like Spider-Man's Doctor Who and just kill him off every time and win a new guy. <laughs> Which I just have to make a. I'm completely off topic now, but Doctor Who's one of the few guys who actually has a reboot set into the plot. <laughs> That's true. Where you can you can kill if an actor has to go, you kill him off, and he can regenerate with new personality. I mean, you can't get rid of all the backstory per se, but you get rid of a lot of stuff. It's like starting a whole new show. 
Well, and essentially, when they started the new Doctor Who, it's kind of what it was. I mean... It, it was a reboot. I mean, they, they got rid of Gallifrey and largely glossed over most of the previous stuff. I mean, it, it's there. Yeah, and they slowly started bringing pieces back. I think you said that, like, you know, first season they brought back a Dalek, second season they had Cybermen in there, mm-hmm. and then so on and so on. And then the Master. And yeah. Then, yeah, and then Davros eventually. Yep. And then whatever. And then from there, I think most of the... Well, I guess then they brought back Gallifrey for the specials. That's true. They did bring back Gallifrey. Briefly. Yeah, very briefly. <laughs> Sorry, I completely sidetracked you from the Spider-Man thing. And yeah, yeah, but I don't know. It doesn't make it doesn't make much sense. And <sighs> That's a case where I feel like they, they locked themselves too much in what they felt it needed to be. Particularly in a, in a medium like that. And actually, in just about any series, whether it be comic book or TV or any ongoing story... You have to be careful that you don't let your story and your characters become too stagnated. You want to make sure that they remain true to the characters and then doesn't become like a completely different animal than the story you started off with or you're really going to lose a fan audience. But at the same time, if you try to keep the same status quo going on for too long, then you don't really have a story anymore. You know, I think the difficulty is sometimes... This might be more on TV, but maybe not. Is that early on you set up a certain dynamic that really works between the you know the main character and the people around him, and you know certain tensions that play off each other. Mm-hmm. But you have to eventually move that dynamic, and I think a lot of times the writers don't know how to move it into an equally compelling dynamic. Yes. And you see that a lot with romantic comedies with, the uh, you know, will they get together? Won't they get together? Sometimes they try to string that out too long. and Because they, they build entire tension in the show on this sexual tension. Mm-hmm. But if you let them get together, then you have to create a new sort of setup. Yeah. And, and I think most of them, especially on TV where... Well, TV that's uh, episodic. Mm -hmm. They don't know if they'll lose the audience by changing the formula. So they just kind of keep the formula static or changing just bit by bit almost too slowly. Mm -hmm. And I I think Heroes had this problem a lot. And I kept waiting. I mean, I loved the first season. Most people did. But I I mean, I also loved the first season. And I enjoyed the second season to a degree. But by the time I got to the third... You had this feeling that they were afraid of moving the characters beyond just normal people trying to deal with powers. At some point, you wanted them to brace them more as a part of their everyday lives. And so, okay, what are we going to do with this now? And one reason why I've enjoyed No Ordinary Family this year is that they've been doing just that. They've been living their lives normally. But I do feel that there's been a story progress, how they went from... There have been some definite story arcs, and now No Ordinary Family still has a problem sometimes of trying to keep a status quo too long. The girl that's, oh, what's the scientist's assistant's name? Oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about, but... But yet, it took her a long time for them to let her, you know, know that her boyfriend was, you know, actually had powers too and was hiding things from her and stuff like that. It's been a show that's moved forward in very slow kind of baby steps, but at least it's still moving forward. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the appeal of the reboot because I guess it's sometimes easier to have characters where everything's new as opposed to characters where everything's old hat. Mm-hmm. Because it, it gets hard when you get to a certain point. The characters already know all the different surroundings and already solved most of the immediate problems. You either then have to rehash old problems by bringing back villains that should be dead or whatever. Uh-huh. Or 
make a game changer. And there's a lot of TV shows now that will every season have a game changer set change the entire setup. Yeah. Alias was kind of like that too. I think a lot of JJ Abrams stuff is set up that way. <laughs> Which I have to give him credit. In the middle of the second season, he like completely rewrote the game for that show. I was amazed by like the sudden there was one ep- or like one two-part episode where suddenly everything had changed. And I was like you can do that? <laughs> and I think that's really gutsy. Well, you know, one of the earlier, I don't know the earliest, but one of the earlier people do that, J. Michael Straczynski with Battle 5 would change the game. That's true. You know, sometimes you thought the show was going to be about one thing, and then by season two or three, it's not even about that anymore. Yeah. He was especially good at framing what's important for this this part of time of the show. Which, And I think, I mean, not everything can be that way, especially... I mean, books should be that way more, but TV, I mean, you appeal to a lot of different people on TV, and I guess it depends on your audience, but I personally enjoy the people who are willing to shake things up substantially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Battlestar Galactica did that, Lost did that. I think V is they're not complete game-changing, but they they move forward decently well, the reboot of V. And how would you describe, we've talked a bit about, I think we keep getting, I keep getting sidetracked into story progression now, but... <laughs> But let's talk a little bit more about stories that have updating to more modern things. What have you? Did you ever watch the original V series? I have not. My my dad used to talk about it, but I've never seen the original series. Okay, so you don't have any kind of basis. No, and I and I I haven't seen the old Battlestar Galactica either. Though I know the new one's very uh, post nine eleven kind of survival semi existential. I mean, it's very modern. Right. It would never have been made pre. 2001, probably. Okay. So Battlestar, just knowing that the original's supposed to be campy and the new one's very gritty, you can see the update substantially, and hopefully some some listeners who've seen both can maybe leave us a comment. Yeah, definitely. Let us know. Give us some idea, because I haven't actually watched either Battlestar, which is probably another nerd shame, but there's so many series out there, it's hard to get to them all. There's, yeah, there's so much. Well, how about the updated Batman? We both know both the original and the new Batman movies. That's true. Well, you mean the Adam West one? Well, or or the Tim Burton. Right, right. Well, here's the thing from my perspective. I, I actually really like the Christian Bale Batman a lot better than Michael Keaton. Some people online might disagree. When I watched the Keaton version, and this was after I'd seen Batman Begins, Michael Keaton just looked very stiff to me. He didn't seem like a martial artist. He just seemed like this guy that kind of walked around in a costume and occasionally flipped people over. And maybe that's just a sign of modern times and you know the batman begins they just looks better to me because i'm used to more of that kind of action in in my movies i don't know well here's a question for you what do you think about the character of the joker as portrayed by jack nicholson and heath ledger does that say something about the times i think so but i mean at the same time i don't think that jack nicholson's joker is really outdated I don't know. I guess I could go either way. I mean, Heath Ledger's Joker definitely has a very realistic kind of serial killer feel to him. But Tim Burton's films have always felt very unique. And and I don't think that's gone away any. And I still think that would be a Tim Burton Joker. Well, I guess I'm not so much meaning the way they played it, but does the version of the Joker reflect cultural sensibilities or fears or... I don't know. It's it's a good question, because, but I'm not well, certain. I'm just saying because the the Heath Ledger is much more anar- anarchist and more uh, basically chaotic. 
Mm-hmm. If you want to read subtext, could be you know people feeling like the world's you know spinning out of control and that there's violence for no good reason and kind of this this disconnect from any sort of morality at all. That makes some sense. And where, where and it's been a while since I've seen the Jack Nicholson version, but you know it's more of a overblown enjoying greed, evil, etc. He's not so. In, I mean, he's insane, but he's it's like he's more overblown, more exaggerated, more. You know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing as opposed to I just want the world to burn. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that says something about the more uh, optimistic 80s. It very well could, and you make a good point. I mean, I, I might be reading way too much into it. But, I mean, that's something that sometimes reboots, either intentionally or unintentionally, tend to bring in the worldview of that time period. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind, Christopher Nolan and Heath Ledger were... I'm sp- certainly looking for something different. They couldn't do, you know... If you were too close to what Jack Nicholson did, people would say, oh, he's just trying to be Jack Nicholson. That And, and the problem is, Christopher Nolan and Tim Burton both very distinct directors. Yes. Which is good, I think. I mean, it's... I wouldn't want another director to try to capture Tim Burton's vision of Batman. I, it's time to see something new. And... I really love Christopher Nolan's uh, take on Batman. I I think I enjoy Batman Begins a bit more than The Dark Knight, just because it's it's more dark, but it's not as oppressive as The Dark Knight felt. I left The Dark Knight feeling kind of exhausted, honestly, but that's just me. Tim, there's a remake we haven't even touched yet that we meant to. What's that? Evangelion. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we recently watched the first of the new movies, that... They're, rebu- they're technically called Re- Evangelion Rebuilt, I think. Okay, but they're kind of remakes. But the first movie in particular retold a lot of the first several episodes of the anime series. This is a series that Nick and I love to hate, or hate to love, depending on how you look at it. Or love and hate? Yeah, it's a mixture of both in any, in any case. It's a brilliant, brilliant anime series, but it's also very dark, to put it mildly. There's a lot of uh, religious symbolism. There's a lot of uh, psychological drama. There's a lot of violence and blood. A lot of violence. (laughs) And nudity. There's a lot of fan service, too, which is why we love it. I mean, um, which which we watch in spite of. Um, But it's one of the most... Brutal? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a very brutal show, but it's also one that a lot of people have paid attention to for good reason. It was a landmark in anime. And it gets right, at least for me, sneaks right underneath all your barriers and like, and under your AT field and just like pulls your heart out. <laughs> under your AT field? <laughs> yeah, I had to pull in that for the Ava fan out there. <laughs> but the other thing is, it's confusing as heck. People have been watching this show for well over a decade now. When was it made? Early 90s? Uh, yeah, I believe so. So 20 years almost. Yeah. And people still don't quite understand it all. So they started a series of movies retelling the story and rewriting a lot of it eventually, it sounds like. There's going to be four altogether. But it's supposed to be a little more helpful. <laughs> Explanatory, I think. And from what I understand, a lot of the story originally came out of uh, the director's own struggles with things. And I think having stepped away for you know, 10, 15 years, you can look at both the show and his own experiences and put it in some sort of form that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that's the hope. And actually, the first movie not only redid all the best parts of the show, but tied it really well, thematically together really well. Mm-hmm. We weren't certain, because of the, the limited time, because it's a you know two-hour movie as opposed to how many episodes did it 
was it like six episodes it was telling? Six episodes, which honestly is, you know, if, with commercials like 20, 25 minutes. So about. Yeah, I guess it's pretty close. I mean, we did wonder, well, we watched it with your wife, Natasha, and she had a lot of questions. And I wasn't sure if that was stuff that was because she was missing details from the rest of the series or if it, we would have been asking some of those same questions if we were asking some of the same questions at that point in the anime, I don't remember. It's been a while since I first saw the series. Yeah, I don't remember. But I thought, I think that's a good example to rebuild, use to restructure the entire thing in a way that is better. It's like a revision. Mm-hmm. I think some reboots are revisions. There's one particularly, there's this, we've mentioned it before, the revolution that Tim and I and other others have worked on, that basically a reboot would be great because there's so many good characters and good scenes but it's it's in a disaster in the plotting because it was written serialized. We passed chapters round person to person. Yeah, one person to write a chapter, another person to write. Something may be related, but maybe not. A lot of people throwing ideas together and trying to make something coherent out of it. You've started it a couple of times trying to reboot in some form or another to kind of tie things together and make it simpler. Yeah, because there's there's so much good stuff in it, but the flow of it is very chaotic. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's why comic books reboot, because the flow of things becomes, it, it gets so chaotic going up and down and having so many things put together. Mm-hmm. Because those are serialized. Anything that's serialized, you know, where one chapter's written, then send off before the end's even done. Right. Well, then like Ava, I think they ran out of money toward the end of the show, which is why they had those bizarre last two episodes, <laughs> which were like minimalist animation in this, like, in the main character's mind, essentially. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Just, just put it lightly. <laughs> if you listen to our preview at the end of last episode, there are a lot of hidden Ava references. If you didn't... Yeah. If you didn't know what we were talking about, that there might have been an Ava reference in there. <laughs> yeah, we uh, the preview which Tim put together was, uh, I found quite humorous, but we had fun putting together. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else will make sense out of it, but we thought it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's most of our reboot ideas. It was hard, it was hard topic to uh, pin down exactly. But I, th- I think we covered a lot of good ground about it. it it's something that can be helpful if done the wrong way it's not going to make anybody happy i have one last question actually for you tim i thought a while ago go for it from our uh our pocketbook versus uh, vision commercialism versus artistic vision oh okay yeah is it too safe sometimes to simply reboot is that more of a pocketbook decision you think than a artistic vision it can be but I think it can also be both. <laughs> I mean, certainly any time you try to bring back an old franchise, whether it be Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek or anything like that, sure, investors are going to see this is a established franchise. People are, are going to pay to see it. Let's do it. But apparently they've produced really good um, new story material with that stuff. It seems to me that maybe, the, especially with Love series, that the, the fans initially think... It's strictly just for money purposes. But if the writers do it well, I think the views could be easily won over. I think Battlestar is a perfect example. I mean, they've suddenly found, oh, wow, they really are doing their own thing with this and aren't just playing off old ways. I think the the V's turned up that way quite a bit. I mean, from what I've seen of it. I think it also kind of makes a difference of how much time has passed since the original. Sure, there's been tons of Star Trek movies, but we hadn't had a really popular Star Trek movie for a long time. Uh, First Contact, I think, would be the really last one that I thought was really a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and that was what, like, late 90s? Uh, probably. I think Nemesis was like 2002, 2003, but I don't think anyone saw that. Now now that you said that, Nathan's going to have to comment and say that he saw it, and that the director's <laughs> cut's better. Because I, believe that's, I believe that's the truth. Okay. I don't know anything about it, so it very well could be. <laughs> but yeah, I think people were hungry for a good Star Trek movie, and Battlestar Galactica had been from, what was it, the 80s or something? So in a sense, bringing those things back was kind of gutsy. Yeah, I think that is a good point, that having time elapsed, Helps a lot. I wish I wanted to see the new Prisoner uh, because you know the the original Prisoner series from the '60s is insanely popular among a small group of people. Yeah, and they redid it. Uh, I think on AMC. I'd heard it got mixed reviews. Yeah, I, I watched the beginning of it. I thought it was interesting. There was no way you were going to recapture the same what in the world just happened as the original because that came out of nowhere. Right. But that was kind of gutsy too to even touch something that's that unique that popular yeah one that i'm not sure is as justified yet is that they're working on a new spider-man movie series part of me is like well okay that could but the other part of me is like the original spider-man movies were so much fun as they were don't know if that going again going back to high school peter is really going to be all that exciting now yeah spider-man one two were great i mean three was a little much it's funny i really enjoyed three in the theater but it was like after the fact that some people brought things to mind and i was like nah, you have a point they, they almost they almost just did too tried too much in it it's like they wanted to you know it's a sequel syndrome where you want to almost top yourself every time but sometimes that just makes it frantic although some make a good made a very good point to me the other day that spider-man 3 got a lot of complaints because it had too many villains in there you had three of them well, Batman Begins had three villains, too. It's just they managed them completely differently. Yeah, and that, and that's a lot. You know, it always comes back to writing. Yeah. <laughs> of course, Nick. So, <laughs> well, and directing. And directing, Tim. And editing. <laughs> editing. 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 <laughs> yeah, after ending and then rebooting this conversation, I think... <laughs> I think we're ready to go on. Yeah, I think we're ready to go. So. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to soundtrack. I'm going to take the first soundtrack today, and my selection comes from a game that I'm going to be talking about a little later in the episode. I'm a big fan of the Kingdom Hearts series, talking about franchises earlier. This remix is from a song from the original Kingdom Hearts game. It's called Above the Rising Falls, and it's remixed by Sapphire, again from the first game. It's very mysterious, and hope you'll enjoy
And welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that. Next up is our take on Tales. Tim, shall I go and start off this section? Yeah, let's start us off. This is where we talk about a movie, a book, video game, something that we've seen or done or watched or listened to recently. <laughs> Anything you've done in your life. Well, my take on Tales would be um, my dinner this afternoon. <laughs> no, I think I'm going to do a quick bullet list. Because nothing stood out as something I want to ramble on about for a while. But I've read, I've read and seen a number of relatively interesting things. Um, I think I mentioned Friedrich um, last episode, which was this uh, book about the Holocaust, which I've been, I read three books for my teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but I read also Farewell to Manzanar, which was very interesting. It was about a Japanese-American uh, intern camp, internment camp during World War II, which I had heard about, never read a book about before. The story of them basically just being shipped off to this place and it not being quite ready, and then they had a whole school and a yearbook and all kinds of clubs and all this stuff in this little wired off area in the middle of Nevada I think. Hmm. It was a, it was an interesting story. And it was and it was a true story. It was a kind of a memoir from one of the she was like like 10 to 12 I think during the year she was there. And talking about how it kind of beat down the Japanese men, the older men because they had jobs and they got pulled out and then they lived in this little place where they couldn't do much and then had to get, go back into society that basically hated Japanese. Yeah. You know, they just bombed Hiroshima and everything. And then trying to get jobs. and It was just, it was kind of a horrible incident in American history. Yeah, very sad. How would you compare it to any stories that you may have read about concentration camps? I've always wondered what the comparison would be like. Most of the the suffering is more on the it's much less for one. Well, that's good. And it's uh, more of a neglect than anything purposeful. Okay. They had these hastily built up barracks and they sent them in, and so the wind was blowing through and it was cold. And within a year or two, they got things better. And but it was kind of a makeshift town, um, and it was just kind of thrown together and picked up after that. And it was just. Like, it wasn't thought through. It was, most of the suffering was caused by just bad planning or no planning. Okay. As opposed to purposely trying to, I mean, they lived relatively decent lives. I mean, I won't say decent, but, you know, just lives. They, they got up, they had different jobs, they had a family life, but you weren't in control of any of your own life. You know, you lived in the barracks, you couldn't go outside the gate unless they said you could. Yeah. And there were some riots inside because of various... They were Americans, but they couldn't... Even before this, you couldn't become American if you were Japanese. Oh, really? Or Oriental. Yeah, there were various rules. Oh, weird. So you weren't an American citizen, so they, they thought you were a foreign combatant, possibly. Because of other laws that had been passed previously. I don't know why they had been passed. So it was just kind of... Like the father in this story, he was accused of working with the Japanese. He was shipped to another place and interrogated, just questioned, not like tortured or anything. Uh-huh. For a shame-based society, it was kind of a, a burden to deal with afterwards, to be accused of hating, you know, working against America. If they found you didn't or they released you, and then it's like you had worked with them, and so you were considered a traitor on, from the Japanese side. And mm. it, it had a lot more uh, societal and uh, psychological effects. The, the girl writing it said it took her forever to not basically hate being Japanese. Wow. That she was kind of always trying to be... American because 
being Japanese apparently was enough to get you shipped away into this camp. Mm-hmm. You know, so she always felt like a sore thumb sticking out in any sort of group afterwards. And so she didn't want to do any of the Japanese traditional things. She didn't want to learn any of the history. She wanted to be American, you know, pretend she wasn't like all these people that got shipped away. Hmm. So it was much more of a psychological uprooting. Hmm. Yeah, that's sad. So it was, it was a very interesting book because, you know, I yeah. heard about the book but never read it. Amazing the difference 70 years can make, though. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully... Yeah, and it just it's just not... America should be a melting pot where, you know, it doesn't matter who you are if you're American. Yeah. But back then, it wasn't necessarily the same. Right. I mean, it wasn't many cases, but Orientals always had a hard time, I think, mm. even before that. Um, and then I saw uh, Memento. Oh, yeah, that's right. I heard about that. Finally. Uh, yeah, I'd finally seen it because I had meant to for many years. People kept telling me it was great. And I guess the only comment I make on that, besides that I really enjoyed it, is that the moving backwards storytelling, which I, I've written a story that moves backwards. First off, it's done fabulously well. Yeah. But it really needs... When we get a normal story, you go, what's going to happen next? In a backward story, you have to have it, why did that happen? Ah, yeah. Or what, you know, what caused this? That that has to be your primary setup. And the way he would set up each section so that you were left wondering, how did he get there? Why is he, she yelling at him? Or, or how did he wind up chasing that one guy somewhere? Yeah, exactly. It was interesting. Uh, I, re- I listened to a bit of an interview, and Christopher Nolan says said that it's... People say it's a non-linear story. He says it's ridiculously linear. You can't take anything out or the <laughs> movie stops making sense. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's probably, he says, more linear than your average movie. Which is true. I mean, because your question is still the same. Instead of asking what's, what's going to happen next, you ask what just happened. Right. You just change the question slightly. So it's it's linear, just in the opposite direction. Yeah, it just takes a lot of planning on the writing point of view to make that work. Right, right. Which I think, which is part of why it fascinated me so much. Also, listen to the interview. He was Chris Nolan was talking about how memory is not necessarily as uh, reliable as we always make it out to be. Mm. That you can miss, and and the movie makes this point too. You know, you can misremember all sorts of things. That's true. You can say the car was blue and it was actually green, and you just tell yourself it was blue, and your memory becomes blue. Uh huh part of this movie is whether memories are correct or not. Um, but I think that's a very interesting uh, thing to play with. You know, eyewitnesses can can be telling the truth and be wrong. Right, because they, they're they pretty certain they saw it one way, but they could be... Yes. Yeah. So it's very... Oh, like uh, the interview said, you have a very, very unreliable narrator in this movie. <laughs> because his, even his, he doesn't even know his own memories. Yeah. You can certainly see the connection from in Christopher Nolan's brain from Memento to Inception. Yes. Uh, he, he'll, he'll take an idea and he'll explore the entire thing around it. Yeah. You know, whether it's short-term memory and stuff like that or dream logic. And he seems fascinated about what is real, about reality. Which movies, going back to last time we talked about how movies can be ambiguous in their interpretation, movies are a great place to talk about what's real and what isn't. Yeah. Much easier than word uh, than written language, I think. That makes sense, because in a sense, a movie is kind of, an, it's an illusion, in, well, in multiple ways. I mean, just the very medium of it, of these images flashing in your minds, gives you the illusion of movement. And, but then, besides that, all the things that they create in the in the world of on the screen I mean, is all artificial, in one way or another. Whether it's CG effects or just sets, it's none of it's real, but it's a very convincing illusion. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. That is a very good medium for film. And it, it's worked really well for him. I mean, between Memento, where a guy is trying to decide if his memories are trustworthy, to Batman, which is, well, like, the Joker telling different versions of the story. You don't know which, <laughs> Same story. Yeah. You, you don't know which one is real. You or the Prestige, where uh, is it a trick or is it not a trick? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all about illusion. And then, obviously, Inception, whether it's a dream or not a dream. <laughs> interesting thread so i'm looking forward to see what he does next i mean obviously i'm looking forward to his next batman movie but after that who knows I, and i'm really hope that he, he can help he's producing the next superman movie which i'm very oh, excited yeah, I read about that, which should be good i'm longing for a really good superman movie yeah that, that last reboot was not it looked great mm -hmm. but it just didn't resonate and i i have a feeling that that was a case where Brian Singer was trying to be too much like the original source. I think he was trying to emulate the Christopher Reeve movies too much. And I think we're ready for for a new modern take. I've read enough really good modern superhero or Superman stories and comics to know that he, the character can still work. And I really want more people to see why it still works. Whenever people say that he's outdated or too goody-goody, it really frustrates me. Because <laughs> I love that character. Yeah, I mean, some of the ones you passed on to me are very good. So, sorry if I, I might have taken over your review. Oh no, that's all. I didn't have anything that I was long. Oh, I, I know what my third one was. I visited my friend Brian, who you know was on last week, uh -huh. and we watched two movies. One is The Searchers, which I won't talk about because I think we might do a cinema selection on that at some point. Okay. But I also saw The Trouble with Harry by Alfred Hitchcock, which is a dark comedy. Okay, I don't think I've ever heard of that one. It, it's very humorous. Basically, I'll just say that this guy accidentally dies, and he gets buried and unburied numerous times during the course of the episode, course of the movie. Interesting. It's... <laughs> And there's like four different people know he's dead, and they're all like, they they all dream, dream that he's dead as a very just a bothersome thing to deal with. Like, oh, we need to get rid of him, or wait, maybe we should turn, turn him in, or maybe well, how will we explain that that we didn't kill him? And uh -huh. it gave me some vibes of Clue. Um, obviously, it's before Clue, and so right. maybe Clue was influenced by it, but. I, it was high, it was highly enjoyable. That sounds fun. Was that early Hitchcock or late Hitchcock? Um mid i think i forget brian told me the year and i have now forgotten and i'm sure we'll get an email from him about it <laughs> <laughs> which is fine I, th I think it was 50s 50s okay so i think it was i think it was golden era okay so that was more mid, yeah, mid to late i guess it was golden era actually oh. yeah okay okay interesting yeah i've never heard of that movie yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I guess the one of the main guys is uh, the guy who played Santa Claus on the Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, okay. Um, Sh Shirley MacLaine's in it. I guess it's her first role hmm. ever. Oh, the kid who ends up being uh, in Leave It to Beaver's in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Quite a, it's quite a humorous little movie. Cool. Very dry. So your turn, Tim. Go for it. All right. You've been longing to talk about this for like two months. <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a video game for the first time that we've talked about a video game on this podcast. Like I mentioned earlier, I've long been a big fan of the Kingdom Hearts series. One of the first PS2 era games that I played very thoroughly. I really enjoyed it. If you don't know much about Kingdom Hearts... It's about a boy that travels around with Donald and Goofy. Yes, that Donald and Goofy. Uh, around a whole bunch of Disney worlds. And he 
battles these monsters. Well, usually battles monsters called Heartless, but there's other creatures around that sometimes he has to fight and other bad guys and stuff. Basically, he starts just protecting the world. He's got this thing called a Keyblade that is literally like a giant key that he wields around like a sword. And it's a fun series. It's simple it's simple gameplay, fun storyline. The fact that when I played the first one, it was before I had played very many RPGs and it was one of the first games that I had really played through, you know, had a very epic storyline. It was all about light versus darkness and at the time I was like, wow, there's so much Christian symbolism in here. And as the series went on, part of me started to realize, you know, some of these stories are quite ridiculous. At least the adult part of me kind of realized that. And then the other part of me kind of says, oh, shut up. This is fun. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a fun series. And so... Kingdom Hearts is actually the only video game that my wife has ever beaten or played, I think. <laughs> Substantially. Well, not counting, like, Guitar Hero well, or... Guitar Hero and stuff, yeah. But she really enjoyed both 1 and 2. Yeah. So the game I'm going to talk about now is Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep, which was released for the PSP. Now, the original Kingdom Hearts and then Kingdom Hearts 2 were both PS2 releases. and But there's been other Kingdom Hearts games released on handheld. The first one was for, like, in between Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, there was one for Game Boy Advance. And there was also one for the DS that came out before this one did. Up until now, the handheld games have always kind of seemed like placeholders. You revisited a lot of the same worlds. The stories wound up being pretty important to the overall storyline, but in a sense, it kind of felt like it retread new ground. Well, Birth by Sleep is not that way at all. It's actually a prequel to the entire series, so Sora is not in it at all. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that he's not in it at all. He's not a playable character in it. He does make a few appearances as a younger boy. But it's new Disney worlds. You revisit some of the same places, but for the most part, you uh, see all places you've never been to before. And the type of gameplay, that's the other thing. Some of the handheld, other handheld games had been a different type of gameplay than the original one. Still fighting monsters and stuff, but a different kind of system. But this one is probably some of the best combat the game has had. They've really improved what was originally just a whole lot of button mashing. You've got a lot of different opportunities for combos and stuff in here. So a lot of great custom gameplay, a lot of... I just love the combat system. The story of Birth by Sleep is about three different characters who are train, training to be Keyblade Masters. And a, there's a big crisis, so they kind of have to go. They go their separate ways. But the interesting thing about this game is that you actually play as all three of these characters, and they each have their own story that you can, can play through at your own pace. You actually create a different save file for each character. There's a recommended order of doing it. Uh, the three characters are Terra, Ventus, and Aqua, and it's recommended that you you play through in that order. But you don't have to. And in fact. You can do kind of what I did, which is I sort of played through them at once. I'd play through a bit of Terra's for a while, you know, go so far with him, and then say, okay, now I'm going to go play some of Ventus's story, and then I'd go play with him. And for the most part, they all kind of go in a similar. They, they visit the worlds in pretty close to the same order, but different things happen to them. They go to different parts of the worlds that they visit. Some of the worlds in this game include Sleeping Beauty's world, Cinderella, Neverland. You got to see more of Neverland in this game than you had in any, any other game before. There's a Lilo and Stitch world, which was basically... It wasn't on the, in Hawaii. It was mainly on an alien ship in outer space. But you got to explore the whole spaceship and stuff like that. Each character would come to these same places, but they'd do different things. They'd see some of the same characters, but again, different things would happen. Usually they were trying to find each other, but 
um, they would always just kind of miss the other person. They, oh, like, oh, they were just here. And sometimes you, they would run into each other and have a talk, and then they run off and do something else. But it was fun, too, because each character had a very different sort of personality and different story arc. Tara goes through a very light side versus dark side battle, and which is actually works pretty well in Kingdom Hearts because light and dark are two powerful entities. In fact, characters are actually fighting with the power of light versus the power of darkness. And what's really fun about all this is that two of the elder characters, these characters' teacher, is played by Mark Hamill. And the main villain of the game is played by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> so you got fun. this you got the Star Wars for Star Trek thing going on, which is kind of fun behind the scenes. So it's interesting at times hearing Mark Hamill's character say things like, Has the darkness taken you? <laughs> and thinking, that's Luke Skywalker saying that. Although Mark Hamill uses more the voice of like Fire Lord Ozai <laughs> from Avatar because he does a lot of voice of work. But both of them do a fantastic job in the voice acting, um, especially Leonard Nimoy plays a great villain, a great elderly villain. He's pure evil. Some of the main characters' voice acting is okay. Terra's is probably the worst, um, kind of bland, which is unfortunate because he has a very interesting story arc. Ventus is an interesting case. Longtime Kingdom Hearts fans are going to be quite confused when they first see and hear him because he looks and sounds exactly like Roxas, which is another character who's linked with Sora. The mystery behind that will definitely intrigue fans. And Aqua's voice, hers is okay. Um, it's not best, but it's certainly better than Terra's. And Aqua is, she and Terra are older than Vin. They're very, um, they look after each other. And she's probably the most motherly of the three. And probably, and I think the first female that you get to play as extensively in a Kingdom Hearts game. And But she's a fun character. As for the storyline, Kingdom Hearts storylines, like I said, they're part ridiculous, part very heart-tugging. And this one probably raises as many questions as it answers. <laughs> <laughs> they have a tendency to do that, don't they? They do. It's very ironic in that Kingdom Hearts is you know, mainly targeted for new gamers and kids. But it, if you break it down, it's got one of the most convoluted storylines of just about, about any series. Well, I don't know, not nearly as Ava probably, but... I mean, at this point, Sora has got like three or four different characters connected to his heart somehow. <laughs> um, you find out after this game. And then you've got Ansem, which as you find out, Zan Master Xehanort, who's the villain I talked about, you find out is, not to give too much away, but he winds up possessing this one character's body, and then later he has amnesia. And then so basically the main villains that Sora's been fighting was first... Uh, Trying to track down how Ansem fits into everything is just crazy convoluted. I'll put it this way. In the first game, Sora fights this guy that he thinks is called Ansem. Then later on, you find out that he wasn't really the guy named Ansem. He was using Ansem as a pseudonym. And the real Ansem is actually this really nice guy. And not only that, the guy who was Ansem, he was really named Xehanort. And Xehanort had been turned into a heartless and a nobody. And they were two separate entities. And you see where I'm going with all this? <laughs> Oh, boy. Like, if you actually play through the games, it sort of makes sense. But if, once you try to explain it to someone who knows nothing about it, it's totally convoluted. But at the same time, you, you still love it. So You play it, you're like, I'll go with that. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And honestly, a lot of Squaresoft plots are kind of like that. That's true. Or Square Enix now. That's the game in a nutshell. It's very epic. I love the boss fights. 
Kingdom Hearts has always excelled in all the boss fights. And I don't want to go too much more into combat because this is more of a storytelling podcast than a gaming one. But just to say that I was thoroughly satisfied by Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. If you're a Kingdom Hearts fan, um, hardcore fan, this is a must play in my opinion. It it might have become my favorite game in the series even though it doesn't have Sora in it just because the gameplay is really good and the cutscenes are all pretty fun and there's just a lot to do in it. It's a, it's a, it's a very fun game. Sounds good. Actually, all this talk about video games remind me of I actually, for the first time in many years, finished a video game. Really? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a huge accomplishment. It is a big accomplishment for me. I tend to play video games and then stop near the end. <laughs> um, well, I, I beat uh, <laughs> the combat system. is not as cool as yours because it's Professor Layton in the Unwound Future. Well, that's a mystery game. It's a totally different genre. Well, it's a puzzle game. <laughs> but, um, there is puzzle combat. Largely there for the puzzles, but very interesting story. But what got me is the end. They had some anime cutscenes throughout it, especially at the end. Mm-hmm. But the end's sad. Oh, really? I'm like I wanted to see the movie. I wanted to see a movie version afterwards. And I'm like, most of the games there, so you can beat like the 160 puzzles. But they do a great job with having characters you care about, uh-huh. and and in the very limited number of cutscenes, like telling a story that has emotional weight. Uh-huh. Which is something you wouldn't have to do with a game that's largely about puzzles. Yeah, seriously. Um, I don't think remember Encyclopedia Brown having that much emotional weight. Because all the characters are trying to stop, re- rewind time because of this girl who died that they were in love with. and But it, it, I, was, I was really pleased with how the story aided everything in the game. And at the end, made, made the game. I mean, the puzzle, I mean, you play it because you want to solve puzzles, but... Man, having a having an entertaining plot certainly is a uh, is a big plus. That's cool. So, Tim, um, I think that's our take on Tales, correct? Yeah, that is. I have to limit myself about Kingdom Hearts because I could probably go on about it. But <laughs> probably bore some people to tears. Well, I think we better wrap things up now. Yeah, I think we're probably hitting our our hour mark. Yeah, we may be. Well, we're going over more likely. That's true. You can run a half marathon faster than we can finish a podcast. <laughs> But if you happen to be shoveling snow, maybe that's a good thing. That's true. Anyway, uh, let's start it. Let's give you some contact info. As always, you can send us an email at derailedtrains at gmail.com. And you can also get a hold of us at our website, which is derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Or if you want to go the long way, you can go to worksofnick.com, and I usually put a link to our website. And Nick does have some pretty cool stories and things on the, collected on his website, so that might be worth checking out. That's true. That wouldn't be a bad thing. We probably won't have another regular episode this month. I've got comprehensive exams coming up toward the end of February, so we'll not have time to edit. But you may see some other things come up, pop up from us um, in the meantime. Yeah, we're hoping to at least keep some sort something posting during the end of the month. Either some short stories or little interviews or something. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Take us out of here. Nick, let us know about your soundtrack. Oh, yes. Um, on my soundtrack. I forgot I didn't have one today. Um, it's called Sid in the Factory. I decided to take reboot to a more uh, literal level. This is actually kind of a drama in a little bit. There's some talking, but it's, there's a factory in Final Fantasy IV, for those of you who played it, and Six wait, is wait, the guy who... Is it four or is it six? I thought this was six. Six, six, sorry. Final Fantasy VI. So Final Fantasy IV has no factory, but it does have a guy named Sid. Yeah, well, most Final Fantasies have a guy named Sid. 
Yes, for some bizarre reason. <laughs> but anyways, so Sid's hanging out in the factory, and he's starting all his machines, and they have to get rebooted several times. Kind of a quirky, fun song. I see that I often pick quirky songs for our soundtracks, <laughs> but hopefully you enjoy them. It's not surprising. That... It's not surprising at all. So I think that's what I, that's all I've got, Tim. That's all we got. All right. That's all we've got. Thanks for listening, folks. And once again, this is Tim. And this is Nick. See you next time. Adios. Thank you.